Hello and welcome to this evening's event, which is a joint event held between the Institute for Government, the Institute for Fiscal Studies and the Chartered Institute of Taxation to look at what has changed in tax policy making over the past six years since our three organisations published a major piece of work looking at tax policy making processes in the UK. I'm the IFG's Chief Economist, Gemma Tetlow, and I will be chairing this evening's event. Um, over the six years since we published the report on better budgets, um, that report concluded that the tax policy making process in the UK was seriously flawed and that to reduce taxpayer confusion, to cut down on costly errors and to avoid embarrassing U-turns for the government, they should overhaul how tax and budget decisions are made. There's obviously been quite a lot of upheaval in the six years since then, lots of things that we certainly couldn't have predicted back when that report was published. Um, but tonight, as Jeremy Hunt's probably putting the finishing touches to his budget announcements for next week, we thought it was a good moment to take stock and think about what has changed. Have there been improvements to tax policy making in the UK since then? Were there problems we didn't anticipate? Were there solutions that have emerged that we didn't anticipate? Um, and what, what are the priorities now for further action? Um, we're going to run this evening with a short presentation from my colleague Jill Rutter, who's a senior fellow here at the IFG, who'll just recap some of those conclusions from six years ago and set out some of the things that she thinks have changed since then. We'll then have uh, some opening remarks from Bill Dodwell, who is the outgoing chair of the Office of Tax Simplification and was one of the co-authors of the report six years ago. Also from Paul Johnson, who's the director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies, the author of an excellent book that's just come out, if you want to buy a purchase copy of that. Since Bill and Paul were also co-authors of that uh, public, the publication six years ago, um, completing our panel is Sir Edward Troop, who is a former permanent secretary of the HMRC and now a tax commentator and tax expert, who's going to provide a bit of challenge on the panel to perhaps where we started off six years ago and what's <laughs> happened since. Um, but before we get into uh, the meat of this evening, a few very brief housekeeping notes for you. Um, please do start sending in your questions uh, using Slido. If you're online, you can use the Q&A panel down the right-hand side of your screen. If there's a question already that's similar to what you wanted to ask, please just upvote it and then we know it's popular. Um, we'll be live tweeting this evening's event from at IFG events using the hashtag better budgets. So please do follow and tweet along. The event is on the record and the video and audio recording will be available on our website and on YouTube shortly after the event. Um, but I'd like to start by handing over to Helen Whiteman, who is chief executive of the Chartered Institute of Taxation. Thank you, Gemma. Uh, on behalf of the CIOT, I would like to add our welcome to tonight's debate, whether you're here in the room or watching online. We're delighted to once again be partnering with the IFG and IFS on this important topic. In holding events such as this, our aim is to bring together all those with an interest in tax policy, tax advisors, economists, policymakers, academics, interested observers, to bring them together with the aim of sharing and hearing different perspectives and improving the quality, not just of debate on tax, but of actual policy and how it is administered. So this topic is very close to our hearts. The origins of the Better Budget Report were in an event the CIOT organised back in 2015 with the IFS on the politics of tax change. The debate had contributions from tax advisors, economists, former civil servants, as well as those who have provided political advice to chancellors on both the left and the right. 
Jill and Paul, you were both involved on the panel that night too. Fond memories? Yeah? <laughs> All had critiques of the tax policy process from different perspectives and, of course, had their share of differences. But there were some unmistakable common threads. At the heart of a number of these was the idea that, when it came to tax policy, government should try to do less but do it better. And that was the start of the Better Budgets project. So I'm delighted that we're here to reflect on the progress we've made and the progress we haven't. And I hope that tonight provides an opportunity not just to look back, but to identify the most promising ways forward of delivering more for a Better Budgets agenda. Gemma, back to you. Thank, Thank you very much, Helen. So I'm going to hand over to Jill for her opening presentation. Okay, thank you, Helen, and thank you, Gemma. And it's great to be back with uh, my very excellent co-authors who've been paying a lot much more attention to the tax system since we wrote budget, Better Budgets than it has to be said. I have, because I've been distracted by other things like Brexit. Um, <laughs> anyway, Better Budget six years on, where are we? So IFG done a number of reports on uh, tax policy. Uh, Gemma wrote Taxing Times about how to do tax reform. It came Overcoming the Barriers to Tax Reform, which, uh, which was produced in 2019. But the sort of mother of all these reports is, as everybody said, our Better Budgets report that we wrote in 2017 with this absolutely stellar, ginormous cast list of authors, Bill, Paul, George Crozier, can't be with us tonight, it's not feeling too well, John Cullinane from the CIOT, my colleague Alice Lilly and Ewan McCarthy, who's now buried somewhere in the Treasury, so it's probably cringing, his <laughs> colleagues are saying, are you doing that? Anyway, people do move on to other things. In that report, we set out 10 steps that we thought would improve tax policy making. And what I'm going to do is just put these out there, and then I'm going to do a bit of a quick review of what's happened since and where we might have seen progress, where we might have seen regression. Um, stick to the commitment to a single principal fiscal event and cut down budget measure proliferation. Establish clear guiding principles and priorities for tax policy. Extend the roadmap approach. Start consultation at an earlier stage. Develop more active approaches to consultation. Prepare the ground for future reform and engage the public. Address the perceived capability gap around tax policy making. Uh, I should add, since Ed was here, in the Treasury. <laughs> Overhaul internal processes. Enhance Parliament's and the public's ability to scrutinise tax proposals and institutionalise and enable evaluations of tax measures. So those were our 10 steps to better budgets that we set out. Actually, you'll have noticed the first one actually was a stick to a commitment because uh, even before we published better budgets, we'd managed to gain probably our big win, uh, we thought at the time, from the better budgets approach, which was in the autumn statement in 2016, the then Chancellor Philip Hammond uh, committed to come in line with international practice to a single fiscal event. Um, we were really, really quite pleased at the time. Both the IFS and we got a call out. CIOT, I think, had too many initials uh, to get a call out in that, but I'm sure he meant to mention you as well. Anyway, so the Chancellor committed to do that. Um, but since then, uh, I don't think things have gone quite to plan. We've seen unprecedented political stability. This is the number of chancellors we've had. You know, we used to assume we could bank on chancellors quite a long time. Uh, 
Jeremy Hunt, I think, will be hoping that he can extend that, uh, that blue line out a bit. But last year was the year of four chancellors, three prime ministers. Um, tax measures sort of continue to proliferate. It's quite interesting if you look at this, you know, which coincides, which shows that actually what you might describe as the Osborne proliferation, uh, where the number of tax measures under George Osborne and I think Edward Troop's tenure at HMRC, but we can come on to that, and she was notable for extreme proliferation of tax. So Philip Hammond did seem to rein it back a bit, actually, when he became Chancellor, maybe he was otherwise preoccupied, but since then we've seen numbers uh, creeping, creeping up. And the single fiscal event, uh, I think now we're pleased if we have a single fiscal event a month rather than a year. <laughs> Because we know that the government's come under unprecedented problems with, um, with both COVID and the energy shock and the need to repeatedly respond to those. I think uh, a colleague Gemma is writing a report on the Treasury and COVID. And I think you know, there's a bit of sort of cliff edge playing with, by the Treasury where, frankly, they could have possibly made changes a bit sooner than they did. And there was a bit of sort of running things. But we have had lots and lots of things that might otherwise look like fiscal events, um, which just happen all the time uh, with more or less degrees of scrutiny. We saw some of that last year. But interestingly, for example, the health and social care levy could quite easily have waited to a normal budget. But Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak decided to introduce that much earlier. So I think we have to say you know, that commitment was good at the time but looks a bit tarnished in retrospect. What about a more strategic approach to tax policy? Well, we got quite excited when there was a lot of trailing before the spring statement that the government was going to produce a tax strategy. So we thought, well, maybe we're going to be able to tick off recommendation two about a more strategic approach and potentially some roadmaps. But it has to be said that the tax plan was better in the advance briefing than it was in the production. And one Gemma Tetlow was quite disappointed by what Richie Sunak produced. Um, she thought that this was a bit inadequate, better on business taxation, I think, than on personal taxation, but a million miles away from the strategic approach, Ted. And despite some of the advanced briefings, something like how on earth are we going to replace fuel duty after we make the big switch to electric vehicles, brief that there might be something coming on that, we know that that is an approaching huge issue and still nothing. So not so much on that as well. Still a gap that could be filled. But let's move to somewhere where I think there has been really quite significant progress, which is on internal capacity in the Treasury. One of our criticisms uh, in the Better Budgets report was there was a lack of prof tax professionalism. This is from an email I got from uh, Beth Russell. Beth is the second permanent secretary at the Treasury, been a long-standing presence in the Treasury tax policy uh, making world. And she's actually set out here some really quite impressive stats, I think, when you think of the size of the Treasury and the size of their tax policy team on how they're trying to professionalise that. Uh, 105 tax qualifications completed by 73 staff for the 14 pending exams or whatever. Um, you know, working to deliver you know, expert academics, delivering six-module tax policy foundation programme. The CIAT doing work on the tax advisory market 
very interested to know quite what that involves. Um, online tax lectures. I mean, really much more comprehensive approach. Certainly when I worked on tax policy in the Treasury, there was absolutely nothing comparable. Obviously, we left all the expert advice then to inland revenue and customers' exercise as was. And 30 tax colleagues now have a tax allowance to encourage them to stay working on tax policy. Really interesting for those of you who know the Treasury, that the Treasury, you know, described by Sharon White as having the turnover of a McDonald's, people do not stay in jobs in the same areas for a long time. So it does seem that the Treasury is making some real, real attempts to look at that. Let's move on. We were critical as well of Parliament, said Parliament didn't really look at tax. The Treasury Select Committee ducked it as too political and didn't scrutinise finance bills very well. I don't think we would say that the scrutiny of finance bills has improved, though very interesting to see what other people think. But the Treasury Select Committee is engaging a bit more on tax. This is a current inquiry on tax reliefs. And that was another thing we highlighted, that although tax reliefs look quite a lot uh, what we call non-structural tax reliefs, tax expenditures, look quite a lot like public spending. They're not subject to anything like the same degree of scrutiny. These are some figures from an NAO report on tax expenditures. There is more focus on this now, and the NAO noted that there were more attempts by HMRC and HMT to manage and ask some questions about the spiralling costs of tax reliefs and ask whether they were actually doing their job in the sort of way with the sort of challenge that the Treasury would impose on other spending programmes, but it still wasn't quite there yet. We talked about the need to have more public debate and foster some external public debate. And one of the vehicles for this we thought was the Office for Tax Simplification, which, despite its name, used to actually put out some proposals into the public domain and engage, engage quite interestingly in quite early stage consultation about some of those ideas. Uh, in the growth plan, one of the planks of the growth plan, not quite clear how this, uh, how this worked, was to abolish the Office for Tax Simplification. Um, Bill will no doubt have views on that, as will Edward, who is writing a pamphlet for the IFG on that, coming to your inbox in the next few weeks. Uh, so I don't think we've seen much there, though of course we talk a lot about tax in public these days. Um, it's also not clear how welcome internal challenge is at the moment. This is the former Treasury Permanent Secretary, uh, and this is the Daily Telegraph saying we need a more political Treasury. I don't know how that is now playing out under the new leadership of James Bowler. And as I say, Beth has a second Permanent Secretary job. Um, but it's quite interesting to see this is one of the problems we identified in better budgets, that we don't have institutional challenge inside the Treasury. I know Edward's sceptical about that. So that's our sort of sit rep, which is some progress, I think, particularly on professionalisation, bit more parliamentary interest, bit more grip on tax expenditures, some progress on evaluation, but otherwise probably regression rather than progress. Interest in others' views. So what next? If we're heading for a time, perhaps a bit more normal time when we're not responding to massive, unprecedented and unexpected external shocks. What would be nice? Well, Jeremy Hunter said, don't expect much from my upcoming budget. So that would be good if he delivers on that and we don't have a proliferation of measures. It'd be very good if Jeremy Hunt made a very clear commitment to returning to a single fiscal event. I think we're entering what we might call the tax danger period <coughs> with the upcoming election. 
It will be really good to see both main parties launch a serious discussion of tax reform, as opposed to what is, uh, on past example, more likely boxing themselves into stupid commitments on tax rates. Uh, that would be very good. Quite a lot of comments there that actually one of the things the Liz Trust government could have usefully done was talk about what tax system did we need to incentivise and help growth rather than focus very much just on enormous and unaffordable tax giveaways. Consider the case for bolstering institutions. In our report, we thought we should big up the OTS, and indeed shortly after that it was put on a statutory basis. We thought we should big up the OTS and actually give it a more activist role and make it, you know, liberate it from the rather sort of straitjacket of uh, simplification and maybe do some stuff on tax reform. So is there a case for bolstering some institutions, a uh, case for an office for tax reform anywhere? We all know that the time in which you create new institutions is on a change of government, so maybe that's one Rachel Reeves would like to think about. Um, I still want, I know it's a lost cause, I still would like the Treasury to take accounting officer responsibility for tax expenditures. I think claiming these are all policy is just ducking responsibility uh, James Bowler, over to you. Um, I think it's good to see professionalisation continue, more interchange, and I think losing the OTS means Treasury has lost a sort of route of bringing some professional expertise into the, into the building. I think it'd be interesting to see how that will go on post-abolition, so I think that's important. And finally, Parliament, tax really matters. Keep up and build on the interest in tax policy uh, that you've started to show. Thank you very much, Jill. Um, Edward, I'll come to you first. As I said at the start, you are the one on the panel who didn't sign up to the original Best Budgets <laughs> recommendations. Um, what, what would be your take on what the strengths and weaknesses of tax policy making are? Did you agree with that? Would you highlight other priorities for improving um, the Right, thank you. Look, first of all, um, excellent event, and obviously I couldn't sign up because I was sort of uh, in post at the time. Um, look, I, I think I will answer the, the, the question specifically, but I think this is a participative event, and uh, I assume we're all here because we think that uh, tax policy could be better, and I certainly don't disagree with that. But I think my first challenge would be when we say we don't like the tax policy-making process, are we clear that we don't like the process... Or are we saying, well, we don't like the outcome, which really means we don't like the politicians and the, the views that they're taking and the decisions they're putting into it. Now, um, I, th there's clearly a little bit of, of policy in every bit of process, and there's a lot of process in mm. every policy. But, but if you think you've got the answers to this, I just sort of you know, ask you to challenge yourself and saying, are you complaining about the politicians or are you really complaining about the process? And I think that goes to the heart of tax policy making, because... I suspect that most of us in this room, uh, and particularly with Paul here, would not have long, would not take long in deciding what we think the tax system should look like. We know what a good tax system looks like, and we know what it looks like in this country. But why do we get something different? Because tax is a political act, and that the outcome, the tax policy you see, represents a balance between what you know, I, Paul, Bill, all of us in this room think we should do. We might have a bit of a debate about income tax and NICs, but we probably wouldn't. Um, and what actually is politically feasible. And that's not to criticise politicians because uh, tax is so political that it needs to be sold to the public. It needs to do some silly things in order to keep the public on side and maintain support for mm -hmm. the tax system. 
So I think the right question to ask in terms of what's wrong with tax policy making is to say, um, have the political intentions behind tax policy been translated effectively into the actual tax policy? And if the answer is no, then I think there is something which needs to be addressed. But if you get a bonkers outcome, but that completely reflects what ministers wanted to do, I'm sorry, that's, you know, that's democracy for you. And an example of this, I would, and do go back to the, I think, 2001 budget and read the budget book, because it's an absolutely classic paragraph of, of Gordon Brown putting, taking VAT off children's car seats. Um, and the justification is completely bonkers. And you could say the Treasury went completely wrong with that. No, they didn't. Gordon knew exactly what he was doing. It was an entirely political act with absolutely no economic effect or in the real world. But I don't think the tax policy process failed there, but it wasn't an outcome that any of us would want. So I just sort of encourage you to think about that. And I'm conscious I've only got three minutes. So in answer to Gemma's question, what are the strengths of the current system? The key strength of the current system is that HMRC collected pool supply number 700 billion this year with a tax gap of less than 5%. The tax system works to do its primary job. We've been slightly lulled into thinking it has other jobs. It doesn't really have any other jobs. It's there to collect a lot of money to pay for public services. And actually, it does that quite well. So just don't forget that. On the specifics of the structures, I think we do have some strengths in this UK that we do have more order. I mean, despite what Jill's shown about the last few years, we do have more order in our tax policy making process than some other countries, not than all. That we separate tax policy and tax making into a budget finance bill process, which is separate from other legislative process. You only have to look at what happens in the US where you can have random tax measures produced through a process which comes out somewhere from the grassroots and is often pork-barrelled and can appear in completely different policy legislation to see what bad looks like. And we don't do that. We do put it through a finance bill process. And I also think, and, and thank Jill for you know, uh, repeating Beth's you know, good facts about where the Treasury are, but also we have HMRC well integrated <coughs> into the process. And again, you, have to look at, you can look at the US or the Australians five, 10 years ago to see how bad tax policy can turn out if you don't have the tax administration well embedded into the policy making process. So I think those are the strengths. What are the weaknesses? I can be a little uh, quicker on this. The weaknesses are we have too many budgets. We do them too quickly. Um, we don't have good in-flight scrutiny. The parliamentary process is very weak. And although you know, it's debatable what the effect should be, I do think more ex post evaluation you know, would benefit. So that's my short answer. And my final comment, and I'm going to use the word sovereignty because, I, you know, obviously it's become very tainted, but in tax, as you all know, wars have been fought and revolutions have been fought over the issue of parliamentary sovereignty, um, national sovereignty over tax. If you do have an answer to the question, how do you, we think you have an answer to the question of how do you improve tax policy making, are you quite sure that you're not trying to take away Parliament's sovereignty over the tax raising process and give it to some unaccountable apparatchiks uh, somewhere out here. Thank you very much. Bill, I'll come to you next. I mean, as has already been alluded to, since this report was written, you've since been tax director of the Office of Tax Simplification now being wound down. What are some of your reflections on how tax policy making has evolved and what do you think are the priorities now? 
Um, well, a very interesting question. I certainly agree with Edwards that quite a lot of people who wish to complain about the process are in reality complaining about the policy. Um, you know, one of the things that the Office of Tax Simplification has looked at is the high income child benefit charge, which is badly administered by HMRC, or rather could be better administered <laughs> if we put it more positively. Um, but actually, most people just don't like the policy and think we shouldn't have it. And, you know, that was never the OTS's role was to question that. It was to think about could we have a, uh, could we administer it in a better way that would make life easier for people. Uh, and when we did our capital gains review, it was fascinating to see, you know, this crowd piling over here about how essential it was that income tax and capital gains tax rates were identical. Uh, and this crowd pile over here saying it would be the end of the British economy if income tax and capital gains rates were, you know, were not kept well apart and all that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, you, you can leave those judgments wisely to politicians and let's see what happens. Um, I do think we've got a number of challenges. Uh, for me, things happen too quickly. Uh, you know, you, when did Jeremy Hunt think about planning for this budget he's going to deliver next week? It wasn't very long ago. And that arguably isn't long enough to get a really good set of workable policies rolled out of the door and that sort of thing. And I, I know everybody working really hard in HMRC and the Treasury, um, but it isn't very long. Uh, and the other thing that's missing in all of that is any form of external input. Now, it's really hard, you know, chances can't just say, uh, you know, so what do you think about that? Um, but if you think about a process where in certain areas you could actually commission reviews or something like that before you moved into policy mm. development mood, you'd have the opportunity mm. to flesh out some of the issues and then rightly the government and you know, the Treasury and HMRC would take what they wanted from it and deliver whatever policy they wanted, but at least they would have had some form of um, gathering of external views and expertise and all that sort of thing. And it's so hard to bring all of that today. There are one or two consultations started at the, mm -hmm. we're sort of thinking of doing something in this area, have you got any thoughts? But almost everything is, we're going to do this, have you got any comments on the detail? And those detail points are great too, but they're not as necessarily, uh, they're ignoring the fact that maybe you wouldn't have started from here, um, if you like, and that sort of input from outside um, the policy-making tent, I think, would add a lot. I do think that we have a challenge because as a country, we've not invested enough in HMRC and its systems. Um, you know, various people have written to me to tell me that HMRC has zillions of systems. Uh, I've no idea exactly what the truth is, partly because HMRC doesn't reveal anything very much. Um, and for me, that's a weakness. So I would encourage HMRC to be a little more open and transparent about where it is and actually have a 10-year plan um, for technology development um, funded by the Treasury, of course, um, who are renowned for not being very good at funding uh, anything very long. Um, but, you, you know, it's more important than HS2 that we actually have a working tax system. HS2 would be brilliant at <laughs> delivering people to Birmingham and all that sort of good stuff. But if you ask any... the other way around. <laughs> Whatever. But if you ask any tax advisor today, they will tell you that HMRC is struggling 
with quality of service and delivering. And that really impacts business. It impacts individual uncertainty. You know, if you're an individual getting a tax bill late because nobody got round to it because, you know, of all the, the things we well know about COVID um, and pandemic working and that sort of thing, then you just have a, have a real sort of challenge in, in all of that. So I I'd just would like to see a, a much more coherent plan for technology developments with HMRC. And if we had much more modern systems, uh, and you can add D DWP as well, by the way, um, you know, the pension system was invented in 1988, and it's fantastic, it's still going. Um, but 1988 for a computer system, be serious. Um, it's not only DWP and HMRC that have got these really ancient things. Um, the OTS found when we went round that some of the, uh, the major pension providers, the people who pay out loads of money, also had really old uh, creaky systems. Uh, and so, you know, as a country, you've actually got to take these steps forward um, because without it, you're not really going to make a difference to policy. And so what would be the biggest thing I would leave with everyone a greater investment in digital, a digital strategy, a 10-year strategy. It, I, for me, it's really good when um, the government and HMRC came out with the tax administration 10-year strategy. Um, I think there's a lot more flesh that should be put on those particular bones, let's just say. Um, and probably the private sector, when they applied to it, didn't quite know what to say, and therefore didn't say very much that was terribly useful. Um, but there is a lot to be said for, particularly in tax administration, having a long-term strategy. I, I know the Better Budgets report talked about roadmaps. Um, corporate tax advisors just loved the first corporate tax roadmap. And the reason they loved it was because it basically gave them more tax relief or cut taxes over a certain period. And anything that where it just gets better over time is bound to be loved. Um, and they said, well, they didn't like the second roadmap, which you know, actually talked about things that didn't cut taxes. Uh, so for me, the idea of roadmaps is really something for tax administration. It's not something for uh, personal tax. It's not something for savings. It's not really something for corporate tax. Trying to try and have longer-term policies, things you don't change every year very much, would be helpful. Um, but don't worry about the roadmaps. Thank you very much. That was precisely the question I was wanting to pick up with Paul, in fact. So I'd be interested to hear if you are in the same place, Paul, because that was one thing that was talked about in Better Budgets, was the importance of governments having, whether it's a written-down strategy, but having some sense of direction for their tax priorities, perhaps to try and help resist the temptation to tweak around the edges all the time. Do you, where do you think we are on, on that, having that vision? What would be your priorities if you wanted the government to kind of have a vision on this? Well, um... It's been quite difficult to have a, a strategy and a consistent direction, hasn't it, given the number of chancellors and prime ministers that um, Jill showed on the slide um, earlier. And I would say, compared with, was it six years ago we did mm. this? It, that's somewhere I would say we've regressed and regressed quite badly. Um, so I kind of thought I knew at least something about <laughs> UK tax policy strategy back then. I, I kind of thought that we were quite keen on keeping the corporate tax rate low. I kind of thought we were quite keen at getting the personal allowance high, for example. So two things I thought that we knew about tax uh, strategy back then. Um, and of course, both have gone into um, fairly dramatic 
reverse. Um, and if the corporate tax one rate, of course, has gone into reverse and then into forward and then into reverse again. Um, and actually, I think rather a, you, an immediate example of this lack of direction is that we've got a budget next week. I, I kind of presume the Chancellor will do something on corporate tax. I might be wrong to reduce the overall burden relative to keeping at 25% and not um, doing anything to all the allowances and so on, because that will take us to one of the highest corporate tax countries uh, around. But I don't know, and nor do all the companies that are um, you know, looking at making plans, and we don't have anything written down to tell us. Um, and it's frankly an absurd situation in terms you know, I mean, we, we know all the politics that's gone on over the last year, but we are in an absurd situation where we're all sort of, or I assume that lots of corporate tax advisors are waiting a gog to find out um, whether there will actually be something in that, um, in that budget, given the lack of strategy um, and direction. I mean, on the, um, uh, on, on the personal allowance, uh, I mean, actually, uh, you know, they're, they're, as I was discussing with someone earlier today who was in number 10 at the time, um, we and others were kind of pointing out that this was quite an expensive policy to be pursuing um, through the 2010s and uh, it might not be fully sustainable and that has certainly proved, out, proved to be the case. And of course we have a government using fiscal drag um, in the way that we've seen over many decades and in a very big way and, you know, politically, who can blame them? I mean, they need the money and this is a very easy way of doing it, but it doesn't look like, I mean, we are getting very much into policy here. Um, it doesn't look like a great, uh, a great definition of a strategy. Um, uh, I, you know, I could go on about all the various bits of the tax system which, and w w where there's no evidence strategy. The one good thing in Quasi Quarting's mini-budget was a reduction in stamp duty. That just got slammed away with everything else because I don't think there was any sense um, that you know, this, this was going to be part of a strategy to sort out the catastrophe, which is the taxation of, uh, of, of, of housing. Um, uh, in, 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 in the UK, absolutely no sense of strategy there. I mean, Bill mentioned the sort of you know, <laughs> capital gains tax. Um, some people want this, some people want that. Um, exactly what the government wants, I don't really know. Um, and it's, it's that not knowing where the direction is which tells you something about the lack of strategy. We could talk about pensions, taxation, and the absurd situation uh, we're in where that, that comes up against um, some absurd public sector um, uh, pension, um, uh, occupational pension systems, which creates problems there, but creates an enormous amount of uh, uncertainty for a whole uh, range of individuals. So that's a rather long-winded way, Gemma, of saying, um, I think we don't have anything approaching a tax strategy, and um, we, we appear to have moved backwards on that one since uh, since six years since six years ago. And it's actually just to end, end up, it, it is worth contrasting this with other bits of government, where but generally you have strategies coming out of your ears, um, uh, some of them last a long time, some of them don't last very long at all. But actually governments, the Department for Education, the Department for Leveling Up, you know, they will publish strategies for various parts of what they're doing. Uh, if you're the Leveling Up Department, you'll publish an enormous strategy for, to change the entire world, uh, which was one of the best government things I've ever read, even if I don't think it's going to happen. But it was a great, 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 great read. Um, I mean, the, 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 it is actually almost against, you know, the, the, the Treasury and HMRC just don't and won't 
do that. And, and I think that's mostly not their fault, but I mean, because chancellors want to keep it close to themselves because we have this dysfunctional process of, um, you know, let's wait until next Wednesday, find out what it's going to be, um, and then we'll all get excited for, for, for a day rather than seeing where we're going over, um, over a longer period of time. Thank you very much, Paul. Um, so do start, well, continue sending in your questions if you're watching online, and we'll come to audience questions very soon. And don't worry, if you're in the room, you'll also have a chance to ask your questions. Um, but I just want to follow up with a few of my own to begin with. I mean, one question, I mean, one of the big recommendations of Better Budgets was a single fiscal event. Would anyone like to put up a case that this was wrong, that actually there's a really positive case for having multiple fiscal events a year? If we leave aside the sort of real crisis moments of the pandemic where clearly government had to take action more than once a year. But does anyone look back and think... But we really we have never stuck have... with one fiscal event in terms of changing policy. Handing out money on COVID, yes, you call it a fiscal event because it's a gigantic mm. amount of money, but there's not much law that comes from it or not much, you know, all of that. So, yeah, stick to one event. I'm not arguing against a single fiscal event, but Paul's final point... Uh, about the theatre of budgets and the mm. fact that, mm. that chancellors mm. love to stand up and have a day and they're the only mm. minister who gets a whole day in parliament mm. guaranteed themselves uh, each year does actually you know encourage the fact there is yep. one fiscal mm. event encourages that behavior and if we had a more consultative mm. process so in a, in a sense there was a, a sort of rolling process of producing fiscal measures then which i'm not advocating mm then that would not happen. Um, but um, I, the balance is for a fiscal yeah. event. I mean, if the Treasury had to bid for legislative space to take VAT or children's car seats, it would get laughed out of the yeah. committee that looks at legislative requirements and priorities. If, uh, if the Department of Transport put in a spending bid to take VAT off car seats, it would get laughed out of court by yeah. the Treasury and not seen this time of day. So I think there is a sort of interesting thing about the theatre of the budget, you know, the sort of, you know, eternal rabbit hunt that we go on on those. And I think it is interesting whether, you know, if we didn't make them such a big thing, would it stop the sort of proliferation and almost the sort of treasury whack-a-mole of trying to produce things to get positive press releases out of every interest group that they can think of uh, that will then fill the special supplement of the FT and stuff like that. So I think there is a sort of deeply perverse process around all of that. And that's why I think it's sort of quite interesting to try and do the sort of counterfactual of much of this, of what if this was public spending? And, you know, would we be doing lots of these little sort of micro things, giving them that much attention and stuff like that? And I think that's one of the sort of almost sort of failures of imagination, whatever. It is, chances don't necessarily get out much. You can see why they want their sort of, you know, in a sense, you know, absent crises, it's the most boring, low-profile job in government if everything's going quite well. And you get to comment on <laughs> some dull so GDP figures every quarter. She said, I speak as a former press secretary at the Treasury. Um, you know, and uh, I remember Gordon Brown and uh, Charlie Whelan saying, when they said, you, know, you just don't do much, do you? Don't do much. You know, we want more opportunities when we can come and, come and attack you. So I can sort of see that, but I do think we've got ourselves into the perverse thing. And I do think there are real-world costs in terms of, you know, Edward's talked about the sort of political objective, tax policy objectives, but a lot of those tax policy objectives are actually real-world objectives 
if you, you know, really want to promote savings, you know, changing ISAs, you know, having a different ISA here, a different ISA there, cross-cutting the buildings, you know, the savings institutions don't know what to do. You know, people don't know whether it's better to be an automatic enrolment or to, you know, do a lifetime ISA or quite what. I mean, you know, actually in terms of wider government objectives, I think it falls well short. And that's, I think, one of the real problems is that tax policy where it's instrumental doesn't actually serve wider government objectives very well because it's done in this sort of, you know, mishmashy, theatre, unthought out, uncollaborative way. I think it's really interesting now we have this new Department of Science, Innovation and Technology. Does the Treasury talk to them at all? No. I think that's a question to which the answer is probably definitely not about actually what it might mean to have a tax system that takes forward you know, investment, innovation, and things like that. So I think it's, it's really interesting as to how far our tax policy process undermines wider government objectives or supports them. I mean, this is um, a point you were making, Bill, about the sort of absence of early stage consultation, mm. which is supposed to be part of the tax policy making process, but mm. clearly doesn't happen in the vast majority of cases. Mm. Now, I think the OTS managed to get you know, consult and sort of get input from a much broader range of people yeah. and some of the topics you were looking at were inherently a bit more sort of stand backish. Do you think in the absence of the OTS there's anything the Treasury can learn, can sort of continue some of what you were able to do in that sort of space? Well I, I do think it's worth thinking about whether the Treasury or HMRC could launch you know what you might call a green paper, something with sort of some outline ideas for an area um, possibly have a mixed, um, it, you know, people that such from outside those great bodies um, combining with people from it to, you know, conduct a sort of broad-ranging consultation. I think that's possible. You've seen one or two examples. You know, Australia loves doing that sort of thing. Um, and Ireland more recently um, has a sort of longer-term uh, tax strategy, if you like, run by... Um, a professor at LSE, I think uh, she is, and, and you know, various other people too. So I think there are some sort of opportunities to do that. I, I'm not sure you necessarily get all the same candid feedback that the OTS would get, um, because the OTS acted as a shield, if you like, for those people giving candid feedback. Feedback that went along the lines of, I don't know why they bother with this relief, um, it's not really achieving its desired purpose. You know, that type of thing, rather than um, what you probably saw in the OTS hybrid working review, which is a long list of, please, can we have more tax relief in these 19 areas? Um, which you know isn't going to happen, um, and unfortunately hasn't gone through that list of prioritisation mm. and that sort of thing going through. So I, that, that would be my best offer. Edward, what do you well, do? I, I, I mean, Bill, I think, is, is getting into an interesting point, which is we spend far too much time talking about, as it were, future policy, mm. but the tax system is, mm. is there to raise... Mm. Am I right? It's 700 billion, whatever it is. A bit more than that. A bit more than that now. Yeah. Read my book. Inflation since... <laughs> <laughs> it's <laughs> gone up since my day. But actually, we don't spend enough time actually making mm. the system we've got work mm. better. Yeah. And I do think that one of the strengths of the OTS was to go back and focus on 
you know, bit after bit at the tax system. And, and yes, look at the policy, but just look mm. at the practicality of how it was actually working in the gory business mm. of getting cash out of individuals and businesses yeah. and into the hands of the Treasury. And, and I do think a lot of the discussion we have in this mm. whole topic, mm. you know, and, and in a sense, the Treasury have an interest in this, or politicians do, is to distract from the fact that tax is about taking money away from people. Yeah. And if you can make them think, oh, it's all about promoting investment or child car safety or, or whatever it is, or women's health or whatever, then this is good because people think about that in the context of tax rather than the fact they're just having money taken off them. So, and in a sense, that's part of the political side which we have to accommodate within our purest view of what good tax policy making looks like but I I would like something you know a successor to the OTS to do more candid consultation on focused areas mm. and not say what do you think the tax system should look like because that's pointless mm. you know there are so many mm. views out there already let's look at how we can make it better as it stands I mean two of the things that Jill highlighted in her presentation of where we've seen mm. progress was one on the tax professional qualifications of mm. the Treasury and the second whilst not totally open, but the NEO report did point to mm. more evaluation of tax reliefs and tax mm. expenditures mm. Mm. having gone on in recent years. What do you all think? Are you seeing the evidence of those areas of progress? There's a lot more information on tax reliefs. The January 23 mm. uh, stuff, which came after the Treasury Committee started mm. its study, mm. you know, it tells you a huge amount about tax reliefs. Uh, and it gives you a much better clue as to how many people are claiming each one of them. So, you know, why are HMRC worried about R&D tax credits? Because for the small business scheme, according to those figures, it's worth five billion amongst 76,000 um, businesses, companies. So that's 55,000 each. And you just think that's really hard for any tax authority to check and monitor and manage and all that sort of thing. And that's why there's a bit of a problem in this sort of, and you only got that data thanks to more and more being published mm. and out there. So I, I do think big steps have been taken following that initial uh, 2011 OTS mm. report on tax reliefs, mm. um, thanks to the Public Accounts mm. Committee, thanks to the National mm. Audit Office, and thanks to you know, the impetus from the Treasury and HMRC. And you see more evaluations. So mm. you know, the Treasury has published information about the you know, beneficial um, investment in the UK uh, as a result of the uh, film tax scheme and the high-end TV scheme. Um, and, you know, it just is intended to show the amount of value added for the UK economy from all of that. Now, obviously, why did George Osborne toss in orchestra relief and theatre relief? Um, <laughs> various people know the reason behind that, and it's not a good one. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's a shame to distract from something that makes the most of an, a sector where the UK is doing really well, but actually this gigantic global competition with these sort of fruitling things that just waste people's time. When we have an arts council, we could hand out the money. But I think that's... Um, so there's lots of, there's lots of issue, issues in that. I mean, one comes back to what Jill was saying. We should be thinking about this in a way that we don't, which is if you want to support a particular industry or sector or whatever, that's not just a Treasury issue. It's a Bayes issue or a DCMS issue. And you might think you should have a bill which talks about whether it's saving mm. policy or whether it's um, industrial policy or whatever, rather than this once a year, let's have a tax relief here, entirely separate from the rest of the mm. strategy yeah. around that and actually a lot of what we've been talking about what Jill was saying what you were saying earlier Bill really is about the way in which we make tax policy yeah. so differently from how yeah. we should make 
other policy, a green paper. It's not unheard of in other parts of government. Um, so why, you know, I mean, it doesn't always uh, happen like that. So why don't we have that um, when we're looking at tax? Why do we you put a thousand different things through one finance bill rather than have once a, once a parliament go actually getting savings or pensions or whatever right rather than messing around, um, messing around each time. When it comes to evaluations, um, you know, again, I mean, this government hasn't been brilliant across the piece, whether it's um, within HMRC um, or, uh, or outside. I think there has been some improvement here, but again, that, there's a strong case for this being more consistent and with more external oversight, or done, um, uh, or done externally, um, in a way that you know, was the, you know, was much more frequent through the 2000s, outside of tax, but certainly in, in, in DWP and so on. So there, there's plenty of scope for, for for doing more there, and for being, as I say, consistent about how things are done on tax with. Um, more how they're done on areas of spending, or at least how they should be done mm. on areas of spending, or have uh, in terms of best practice being done for spending. Okay. Uh, do you want to continue with that or move on to one of the questions? <laughs> I, mean, I, 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 I agree in the sense that you can identify areas of tax relief which are so quasi-spending that they clearly mm. should be subject to quite spending review. The problem is that we have a bright line between tax and the rest of government mm. policy, which is about paying out money rather than collecting less money, which may be economically the same, but are legally, politically different. Uh, we have a bright line. And once you move that line to say, oh, well, you know, the Treasury has only got sole responsibility over things which are raising money, and if you've got some reliefs, and I sort of challenged Jill's categorization of what were reliefs which were pursuing a government objective, um, you are going to have endless fights and endless difficulty. Mm. And the risk is, and this is not about protecting the mm. Treasury's position, it's about protecting the £700 billion and the need to have a self-contained process which keeps cranking that machine and turning it up. So <coughs> you can produce any number of examples where I would mm. completely agree with you, but to try and produce a system which actually categorises carves those off and puts them into a different process, I think would prove completely impossible and potentially very damaging to the, the core function of the tax system. But really, Discuss. would it, I mean, you know, one of our suggestions in Better Budgets, and one that I'm still, uh, still very keen on, <laughs> is that in the same way as we expect a permanent secretary where their uh, minister wants to pursue something that's not value for money on spending, has to require an accounting officer direction. Now, on tax policy, you know, successive Treasury Permanent Secretary said, no, that's policy. Well, the spending, frankly, is policy as well. And I don't see how, if you do something that actually the evidence just does not stack up for, you know, there is no conceivable way that that really meets a set objective, that I don't see why the Treasury Permanent Secretary shouldn't, in those circumstances, be at least asked to satisfy themselves that it's value for money and you know, notify maybe the Public Accounts Committee, maybe you'd want to do it to the Treasury Select Committee or something, if they didn't felt it met that right criteria. We all know that the power of the accounting officer direction is not in its use. It's in the fact that it's available to use and it forces you know, senior officials to satisfy themselves and it potentially acts as a bit of a deterrent, not maybe the world's most effective deterrent, a bit of a deterrent to ministers. And I really don't see why we exempt some of these you know, from at least that sort of internal challenge that's not involving other departments. I think there are lots of areas where it would be better. You know, I'll give the example of something that seems to be a policy that raises quite a lot of money that everybody seems to really dislike, the apprenticeship levy. Uh, we did a, did a 
thing a few years ago with Sense About Science where we looked at the evidence base behind different policies. And one of the things we looked at was the apprenticeship levy. And we told the business department we were going to give them very poor marks for their lack of evidence base on the apprenticeship levy. And they said, it's not our policy, it's the Treasury policy. And we said, well, the consultation documents come with your logo on it, so I'm afraid we're counting it as your policy. Mm. And it really was a sort of, you know, unowned orphan that probably some of the Treasury's thought of. Well, thrown that's it over slightly the reinforcing my point, isn't it? That, you know, once you start splitting these things between departments, it all becomes mm. quite messy. No, well, it would have been hugely better, I think, if the Treasury was going to do something like the apprenticeship levy. It would have been jointly developed by the Treasury and the business department, and there was a degree of co-ownership on it, Edward. <laughs> and then you wouldn't get in a situation where you raise really quite substantial amounts of money, and you have a policy that nobody really is at all no. happy with, including the people who are administering it. But... Um, yeah, because I think one of the things we would agree is that there's a lot of need to do something on skills in this country, but anyway. For sure. I think Jim Harrod did take the accounting officer approach on the um, eat out, help out. He did. But that was on uncertainty on eat out, help yeah. was it? Well, I thought it was on fiscal risk because yeah, fiscal he, risk. it was the risk it. of yeah. fraud, which yeah. I don't, that's not uncertainty, mm. that's, yeah. you know, yeah. that's a fiscal issue. Right, I'll come to you questions from the audience now. Please do put your hand up if you would like to ask a question. I'll probably take them in a batch of, okay, there are two. So I'll take the lady mm -hmm. in the middle there and then I'll come to you. Please do say who you are if you're happy to. So, <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'm Alice Jeffries. I'm the head of tax policy for the CBI. It's been a really interesting discussion so far. And one thing I wondered if we could delve into a little more is the methodology and evaluations piece. Because at the moment, often Treasury measures, we're given a, a first year impact. We're given an OBR forecast. Don't have very much idea of the dynamic effects of things. But there's a few things that have been mentioned today and that we think could be helpful um, around, for example, additionality value of reliefs, um, complexity measures. I know, Bill, that the OTS, I think before you joined, looked at creating a complexity index for tax measures um, that never really got off the ground. And then there are a couple of things that are already done, but not necessarily done in a consistent or useful way by HMRC. So one of them is compliance costs for businesses on an ongoing and a one-off basis. Those estimates do not reflect what businesses tell us. Um, they're actually paying for their compliance costs for new tax systems. And the other one is on fraud and error, where we know that HMRC are looking again at their approach on those. So I guess my question from all of this is, how many different metrics should HMRC be using, to, or HMT be using, to look at new tax policy measures? And which of those would you pick as your top one to add in as a regular test? Great, thank you very much. And second question here. Great. Yes, hello, uh, Stephen Herring. Uh, until um, three years ago, I was head of tax at the Institute of Directors. Um, the, one of the um, principles that's been discussed about is whether we have what we have as a, uh, whether we have a tax policy. Uh, and the more I worked in the air and saw how different bits of government worked is, I don't think there is actually such a thing as a tax policy. I think we have a policy for each individual tax. And there's very, very little focus on the interface between those taxes and how they impact upon individuals and businesses. We all know that you can have two individuals with the same amount of capital. One will pay inheritance tax and capital gains, and the other might pay neither. So um, it just depends in which order they, they die. <laughs> right? So it's, uh, and similarly in business, there's a lot of focus on the corporation tax rate. There were some articles, been some articles this week about um, some US investors. But really what the focus to 
most of the businesses when I was in the mm. profession looked at was the overall instance of tax, mm. how, including employment taxes, uh, taxes on dividends, etc., etc., business uh, rates on business premises. Whereas, what we always get is, is that should it be 25% or could it be 22 or should it be 19? It always seems mm. to go down the, the narrow route of a single tax and totally ne neglect the interface between different taxes that affect the same people and the same transactions. Great. Um, so I'll throw in the next one that's also come in online, it's one most popular. Um, so Dale Cambridge Sharp asks, as a former HMRC policy official, I've seen the last minute quick, we need a revenue raising idea stage of the budget process. No, no. How should the process be changed to encourage the setting of long-term strategy, for example, for net zero delivery? Um, right, Jill, do you want to <laughs> kick off well, with... Uh, well, let me take the net zero question. I'll leave the other one... Well, I'll make one comment on the other ones. Um, I think on net zero, I think, is an area where the government does need to set out a sort of long-term direction. We saw a little bit of that when it announced the call for evidence on uh, potentially switching the burden of taxation between... Uh, electricity and gas. Electricity is overtaxed massively relative to gas, but that was then knocked off course quite severely by the uh, energy price drop, which I don't think the Treasury had quite factored in. But I think there is a really strong case for any government to go through the tax system and say, is this the tax system we would have if we are moving towards an economy in net zero? Paul is a member, I think, still. Of the Climate Change Committee, Still, or have you left? Uh, the government's too useless to replace me, so I'm on lot. Yeah. <laughs> too, I've been on longer than I should have been, but, but everything is mangled in government, so I'm stuck. So Paul is a member of the Climate Change Committee, so I'm sure has, uh, has views on that. But, I mean, we have done a report on net zero and the tax system. It's very clear that you know, there are features of the tax system that you wouldn't have if you were really genuinely moving there. So I think that is an area. I think one of the really interesting things on, on Alice's point is... Um, is yeah, other areas, the Treasury always exempts itself from everybody else's rules, uh, which is one of the huge privileges of working in the Treasury. So the Regulatory Policy Committee will look at um, proposals for regulation and say the government's done a terrible job of you know, assessing the costs on business and stuff like that. One of the things that really struck me when we were doing our Better, Business report, uh, Better Budgets report was it was only in the final interview that anyone mentioned the advisory board on, was it? on ABAP, ad, Administrative ABAP, Burdens On Administrative board. Burdens. Nobody, nobody mentioned it to us at all until the final interviewee when we were at to sort of finish it off. And he sort of thought, well, actually, you know, shouldn't there be some sort of ex-ante challenge on business burdens? We suggest in better budgets that this might be something you could do with OTS since they were sort of similarly in there and you'd actually sort of rather than just give them the stock of existing things to review, you would actually have some role for internal challenge from a compliance cost business burden assessment before you actually made the system more complicated. Um, I think that's been clearly a proposal too far for the Treasury, but I do think it is quite interesting when you look at that, how, how weak that is. I mean, the OBR would say they do do dynamic costings of uh, budget measures, but I think they don't spell out the way in which they do them with quite the sort of chapter and verse that they used to do so you could see what assumptions were underlying them. You just get that sort of line of figures in the policy costings 
Yeah, uh, but it's, it's the Treasury document. Treasury the document is the policy document, but we don't get the underlying analysis much, much in the same way yeah. that I think once we used to. But, um, but I'll leave the evaluation and other questions to people more better placed to answer it than, uh, than me. Correct. Paul. Um, yeah, so I think there's, uh, I mean, on the sort of question, what, what, what should be made public? I mean, the OBI, I mean there, there is quite a lot in, mm. uh, that's public about tax and more than there was pre OBR, though I agree, this 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 loss of um, some of the information on the um, uh, exactly how the dynamic costings are, are done is is an issue which we should which should be sorted out. I mean, there is a failure here actually on our side as well. I mean, there is not often agreement among the academic. It's quite a small academic community working on the dynamic impact of of tax changes in the UK at least. Um, and embarrassingly, we often can't give us straightforward answer to a straightforward question like what is the you know, long-term dynamic consequence of a 5p change in the corporation tax rate um, and that you know frankly is slightly mm. embarrassing um, but uh, you know maybe HMRC and Treasury should be investing more in research but it's a serious it's a serious it's, a, mm. it's genuinely a serious issue actually there are a disappearingly small number of academics working in this area particularly with a sort of yeah. policy um, focus and, and, and genuinely it's incredibly hard to persuade people to fund that kind of work because they either think government or business should be um, funding it but there, but there is there is an issue there um, but I think there is a you know there is a in terms of the sort of question what should we be putting in what should be put in the public domain absolutely the workings of what we think mm. the long-term impacts of this will be in a dynamic sense in terms of costs to business the sort of um, the regulatory costs I think one thing we always miss when we talk about mm. this is that the cost is is cumulative mm. so you know very often it looks quite plausible when you you look at one of these things and it says well, it only costs business some relatively small amount but you layer that on top mm. of everything else mm. and put it all together and it it, it, it clearly is becomes a, mm. a barrier to growth or a barrier to entry or what have you, and I think I think governments find it very difficult to think in those kinds of um, in those kinds of ways. Um, and yeah, I think that you know that, that mm. speaks also to the kind of issue of the you know, taxes don't fit appropriately 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 together uh, in ways which create all sorts of problems. In terms of the long term term strategy around things like um, net zero and and all sorts of other things, one thing I wanted to say. Um, actually, uh, in my introductory remarks, was we haven't talked about tax devolution. Well, we have entirely different settlements with Scotland, Wales, um, and Northern Ireland, and uh, you know, we, I wouldn't be surprised if we end up with different settlements we do on the spending side with uh, different bits of uh, with different bits of England. We don't seem to have a you know you might want to do Northern Ireland differently with Scotland and Wales, completely different in terms of actually even how they're recompensed for different um, amounts of tax they raise. Within their within their borders, so there's 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 no sense of strategy there. The, I mean, we've mentioned the, um, the increasing urgency about what do we do about the fact we're going to have zero money from uh, taxing petrol and diesel, um, yeah, really, you know, quite soon. I understand it's politically difficult to talk about um, how you're going to replace that and road charging um, and so on. But is it really? Thirty odd billion different difficult in the sense of you know <laughs> in the sense of the cost of um, in the sense of the cost of not doing that and you know there are all sorts of other things that we know are coming down the road including um, you know the costs of, um, of, of you know, an aging society and how we might think about taxing a population which will be demographically completely different to what it was twenty years ago um, into the future and those again are the sorts of things that. Um, it's quite difficult to see that sort of long-term thinking on tax policy. Thank 
you. I mean, just to pick up on the point you made there, Paul, about the sort of paucity of research evidence on some of these key questions that really ought to matter mm. for Treasury mm. tax officials. One of the things that's supposed to shape how research funding is mm. directed in the UK mm. is departments' areas of research interest, which they publish. And unfortunately, the Treasury, I think, is the only department that has never published any ARIs. <laughs> there is actually not, no statement of the Treasury's priorities in terms of what it would like to see UK mm. academics directing okay. their efforts towards. Um, so... It's another bit of Treasury exceptionalism, Edward. (laughs) When when I was at Treasury, we did have the Economic and Social Research Council come round and talk to us like they did others, but but maybe that wasn't translated into an ARI. It's not actually. No, I didn't know that. (laughs) I didn't know that. Bill? There was a time when the Treasury with HMRC funded TARC, which was the centre in Exeter, uh, Mm. doing research on tax administration. But that's all. But yeah, banned from doing anything interesting on policy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, absolutely. But the, and the other thing that goes with that is the reopening and broadening of Data Lab, which is the way in which HMRC makes available um, data about the tax system, so that researchers can indeed look at it and, you know, join things together in a way that um, aren't routinely joined together by HMRC. Uh, and you know, that's that's something for academic research and needs to happen. I completely agree with Stephen on the mm. interface between mm. two taxes or multiple taxes. Um, I do think it's one of the causes of complexity or you know, one of the failures of simplification, if you like, is that all too often people focus on their policy and they don't think hard enough about the fact that it's their policy is now being added to the rest of the tax system. And if you think about our savings policy, yeah, you know, if, if you're one of the 80% basic rate taxpayers, our savings policy is not too hard. You basically don't pay tax on savings. Um, mm. If you are above that in the sort of 20%, then you, you have no idea how to work out what your tax is because of the way in which all the various different allowances and reliefs and whatever interact. And, and if you don't know that, then it doesn't encourage you mm. to make sensible economic mm. and family and other, other decisions that are really important. So I you know, completely agree with that. Uh, there is a lack of joined up thinking between inheritance tax and capital gains mm. tax, uh, for sure. And, and I'm sure there are other examples out there in the system. Um, you know, the OTS did a review of simplification. This was one of the points you brought out. Mm. And this was one of the challenges we left when we did presentations for the Treasury and HMRC is please try and think not only about your area, but about <coughs> the, the breadth of things that you might be affecting. I mean, that was essentially the sort of the, 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 the one the one line summary of the whole Murley's review of the tax system yeah. was you need to think of it as a progressive neutral system. Yeah. And um, so often it gets seen as individual bits which don't fit mm. well together, creating all of the problems that you're describing. Edward, did you? Um, I think a lot of what I would have said has been said. Just just on on that last point, I mean, and and Paul did fess up and say, you know, well, actually, the academic community is not very good about this. But, you know, I'm I'm not an econometrician, but it has always seemed to me absolutely apparent that we know where the formal incidence of any tax is, but we really have very little idea where the effective incidence is, and that is compounded 
when you add all the taxes together. It's compounded when you look at businesses and it's particularly compounded when you look at businesses in the context of all other government policy and of course the fact that they operate internationally. Mm. So I, I sort of, I, I sympathise with Stephen's point, but the reality is this is incredibly difficult and, <laughs> and rather smarter brains than me have failed to sort of come up with any really satisfactory answer, which sort of pushes me back into my you know, treasury mode and say, well, look, if we can get some money, let's just get some money. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but, um, and it's, it, the big but goes back to Alice's point that, and, and there are things called TINs, T-I-I-N, I can't remember what one of the I's stands for, which is hmm. tax impact notes. So can somebody... T yeah. Information impact notes, which are supposed to do quite a lot of the things which Alice described. And I think in a sense, one of the lessons from, from the Better Budgets work and this mm. discussion is really that whole process should be looked at a lot mm. more yeah. thoroughly and we should see what actually do we want these things to do within the bounds of what we can do. But the other point about mm. TINs is we never revisit them and it's the sort of you know, sure. ex-post evaluation and it seems to me it would not be that difficult to effectively come back to a TIN after two, three, four, five years and say, mm. can we just look at what was said and compare it to what's actually happened. And that would be, you know, it is not putting a check on ministers, it's just sh shining a light on existing policy. Final point, also I think in, in response to um, Alice, and there was some mention of ABAB, the Administrative yeah. Burdens Advisory Board. I do think that whatever comes after the OTS, you know, there is a big role to play at looking mm. at administrative burdens. Not, and ABAB is sort of a bit of a scattergun, mm. but to look at, you know, be tasked, mm. or to take on voluntarily the task of looking at administrative burdens and the administrative impact of different bits of the tax system. Um, and I think, again, that would shine a light without straining politicians in a way they wouldn't like. I mean, Gemma, just to add, uh, when we did Better Budgets, I remember we had a, co a conversation with somebody at HMRC, and we asked this point about evaluation. They said, well, one problem with evaluation is that don't necessarily put out what the objective is of a policy. So it's quite difficult to evaluate something if you don't set out what it's trying to achieve with the sort of more instrumental bits of taxes and other things where you're just looking at where the cost estimates right and things like that. But the second thing they said was actually policies change so quickly that you never have enough <laughs> years to sort of actually do an, a proper evaluation of them because they're tweaked you know, the year after and then they're tweaked the year after that. So you never have a sort of fair run of years to actually say, did this thing work, which is one of the problems on the when proliferation... On the basis of what are they tweaked if you've not evaluated? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> because, you know, I need, I need another headline on this. So anyway, so which I thought was quite interesting. Yeah. So. Um, we are unfortunately very short on time. Is there any more burning questions in the room? Okay, probably, I'll take one final question and have brief answers. From Anything me. interesting online? Thank you. Um, it's been a really interesting conversation. David Bagg from HMRC, but formerly of the Treasury um, and one of the people who benefited from uh, the tax technical offer. So uh, thank you very much uh, to all who influenced um, some free training for me. Um, but um, uh, my, my question was sort of, we've heard lots about what the UK does wrong and we've heard about what some other countries don't do well, like the United States. What, uh, just to close us out, where, where in the world would panelists direct us to look at how budgets are done better 
It always helps New Zealand. Everybody always says that. <laughs> <laughs> the answer to every question. But as people remind me, New Zealand is as a population the size of Manchester, so it's yeah, quite yeah, difficult yeah. to yeah. apply it to the yeah. sort of open, complex economy of the UK. Yeah. Well, I, yes. maybe not everything right. Is there any sort of examples of things that people would point to? Well, I'm sorry, I don't want to hog, hog this answer, mm -hmm. but um, uh, the, the Estonia and that sort of those accession states yeah. um, have got some amazing digital problems mm. because sure. they have not had an existing tax system mm. with, and I think when I was at HMRC, we had 69 le legacy IT systems. Mm -hmm. And so they could start with a green field and they could do something which was really fit for purpose. And, and so Bill's counsel is right about having a 10-year IT policy, mm. but it's bloody hard yeah. when you've got 69 systems. I maybe down to 28 now. Um, and everything you do to one, literally, you don't know until you turn it on how it's going to feed through to all the other ones. And sometimes they fall over when you do that. So, yeah. you know, that is what we should be looking at. But I, how you get the IT from where we are to Estonia, Kazakhstan, or even China or Russia, who've got amazing VAT systems, which I've seen work. Um, you know, I'm not sure. Bill, I, I think one thing the UK does better than almost any other country, and certainly a million miles better than anything in the EU, is consultation. I, I've talked about the need for early stage and all that sort of thing, but, you know, the EU just doesn't believe in consulting on any tax policy whatsoever. Um, it's not the role of, you know, talking to business or advisors or anything like that. Um, they just get on with it. If you're in France, you know, there's a small clique who are consulted. Um, but if you're in that broader representation, it's so much harder. So, you know, I, I do think we should remember how well consultation goes here, even though I'd like it to be better still. <laughs> Um, I don't think of an answer to that, but I, I would want to just reflect on um, on the amount of tax that's raised. This um, you know, eight, eight hundred odd billion that oh, it's uh, gone up <laughs> <laughs> that, 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 that we raised um, in, two, in two respects. First, in answer to the sort of the, the, the question, of course, most other Western European countries manage to raise an awful lot more. So um, yeah. uh, you, you know there is. There is scope to do more if we wanted. And in, on, on that measure of success, we're not actually terribly successful if you see that as a measure of success. But more broadly, I just wanted to um, just kind of uh, posit a, a slight word of warning to um, mm. against what uh, Edward's been saying. It's all about getting the money in. Of course, it's all about getting the money in. We have to get the money in and we, we need the money. And in the future, we're going to need more money. But as we need more money, it's going to be even more important that we get mm. the structure yeah. right. And you can see mm. bits of the tax system. Mm. You know, it's very... I'm sorry to go on about stamp duty, mm. but I hate stamp duty. <laughs> I mean, you know, it brings in whatever it brings in, 12 billion a year. It looks quite easy. It is staggeringly damaging. It's a desperately it's bad way like of raising 12 billion a year. So the fact that it raises that money is not a good excuse for having it. And I understand the politics around it, but we, you know, we do need to be careful about this. And I, I mean, I was inculcated with this when I was in the Treasury, when the Permanent Secretary was spending this up near, whenever you talk about tax, the only thing that matters is we get this money in. Well, actually, in the end, it's not the only thing that matters because this dynamic stuff actually matters. I yes. mean, you know, yes. the dynamic stuff over a two, five, 10 year period really, really matters. And I think that's one of the things that we do lose, um, lose sight of in, 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 in some of this debate. And what might raise money in the short run isn't a very good way of growing the economy to raise money in the long run. I'm going to end by saying, I mean, we've had lots of reports about uh, how anemic 
our productivity growth is. So I think the UK needs to regard its future tax system as a source of comparative advantage and having a sort of random, indiscernible system that's just about raising huge amounts of money without a clear strategy underpinning it doesn't look like the yeah, way you sort of have to wait for a big day in March or maybe November to find out you know what your tax liability is going to be the next year what system doesn't look like the sort of country that is going to be a sort of major magnet for uh, footloose capital so I think the more we can actually focus the debate in the upcoming election on how do we have the sort of tax system that we need to support our longer run ambitions as a nation rather than just focus on who's prepared to give what commitment on what headline tax rate on the major tax things, which we all know will ultimately prove undeliverable, would be a really, really big gain and is one that we desperately need in current economic circumstances. Thank you very much. Unfortunately, that brings us to a close. Um, very sorry to all the people who posted questions online that I didn't manage to get to. Um, please do keep talking to us about tax. We love tax. We will keep working on it. <laughs> anyway. um, like, so thank you very much to our panellists, to Jill, to Paul, to Bill and to Edward. Um, big thanks to CIOT and IFS for partnering with us on this event and continuing to work together on tax. Um, thank you all for watching, both here and uh, online. Just a reminder that our next public event will happen on Wednesday at 11am when we are having an event on opening up the civil service, how to improve external recruitment. Um, so very much this theme of improving professionalism and expertise in different areas of the civil service, which we've been touching on today. Um, but that brings us to a close. Can you join me in thanking our excellent panellists?